All right. Welcome to the basement, everybody. Hope everybody had a good weekend. It's Monday, so here we are on the show doing what I usually do on the show every Monday is talk to you guys about cool shit. Um, I don't know. I'm sorry. Sometimes I don't know how to kick off a show by myself. I haven't done an episode by myself in like two months. We've had some good guests the past past few past few months. And um, I've kind of had this episode like this on the back burner for a while. I've been meaning to do it till I kind of felt comfortable getting it out there. And um, I don't know. I, I didn't really know of anybody who would want to come on and talk to me about it because I kind of feel alone in this topic we're going to talk about here today. Well, it's not really a topic. It's we're, I'm just, again, like always, I'm talking about movies, <laughs> talking about movies, talking about the arts, talking about music, talking about whatever. I don't know, ever since this thing that I'm going to talk about here today popped up on my radar and got put out there into the world, I was like, oh, this is cool. I need to do an episode about this. And because I'm a big fan of, I'm just going to go out and say it. (laughs) So we're going to talk about something called Kino Cult today. If nobody knows what that word is, that title, that brand is, I'm going to elaborate to kick off the show a little bit. Uh, Kino Cult is a streaming platform that launched, I think it's like first week of October or something. I want to say October 1st, October 2nd, doesn't really matter. But if someone from Kino Lorber uh, listens to this, (laughs) maybe they'll call me on it. But I remember it was like, I heard about this. Someone posted a link online that uh, Kino Lorber was putting up a streaming service called Kino Cult. Now, if you have no idea what the fuck I am talking about, that's completely fine. You know, I'm a physical media head. Um, I buy Blu-rays. I buy DVDs still to this day. I seek out, like, you know, stores that still, not even just like, you know, was it FYE or Best Buy, if FYE is even still around, but just like, there's still like these independent physical media stores that pop up in cities across the country, and it just intrigues the hell out of me. And, you know... Um, a lot of these independent labels uh, that produce Blu-rays for you know films that have kind of flown off the radar that people love that you can't find streaming anywhere. Um, usually, these stores kind of acquire you know being able to sell from those independent labels, and uh, Kino Lorber is one of those labels. I believe it's a UK based. I bought from them plenty of times. Uh, I got some, you know, I got some Blu-rays sitting in my, uh, sitting in the rack behind me here, but um, I just pulled up their website right now, and I completely, this was actually something kind of cool when I saw it. Uh, they got a big sale going on on their website for, um, there is a, it's the 100-year anniversary of the famous silent film horror movie Nosferatu, uh, if you I'm pretty sure a lot of people who listen to this show know what Nosferatu is, and that's fine if you don't. But um, it's pretty much one of the creepiest vampire films of all time, and it came out in 1922. Uh, A lot of famous stories behind the making of this movie, especially with the lead actor, Max Schreck, who plays the title title role of Nosferatu. Um, It's basically Dracula is kind of the story of Dracula. Um, there's a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes stories about um, how they, you know, th- this being with rights issues and stuff with Bram Stoker's family and stuff. So I, I don't really want to go into that. I'm, I'm talking about something else today. But, uh, yeah, Kino Lorber is just this brand of Blu-rays uh, independently that just has these fucking just awesome titles that they release um, and they also do like in-theater screenings of stuff, uh, which I think is kind of cool. And they, there's just all these different genres you can look into. Um, and they got some really good uh, sales on stuff. Um, I mean, they, they have a lot of like, you know, classic, you know, noir films. Noir is kind of back in the zeitgeist with, um, you know, Nightmare Alley being a big thing out there in the world and getting Oscar buzz and whatnot um they have a lot of box sets there's you know right now on their website they have you know like oscar winning films that they you know acquire the rights to to release uh, like silent they have a you know a blu-ray of silence of the lambs or it's 4k ultra hd with you know they also got misery space balls um they got box sets of yeah again film noir and western classics and whatnot 
uh, night gallery on here as well. I'm just going off what I see on the website while I record this. Yeah, it's just so Kino Lorber is a Kino Lorber is a brand of you know basically everything I just said. It's a you know Blu-ray label that picks up all these titles and gets them out there in the world because you know people like me are always hunting for this kind of stuff. Um, but to jump ahead or jump back, I should say, to October 2021, uh, a little blurb showed up on social media saying, you know, Kino Lorber is putting out a streaming platform called Kino Cult, which is they're just putting all these like old 1960s, 70s, 80s, some a few like, you know, recent kind of obscure films of the last 10 years also are on there. Um, and they're making like a cult film streaming service. And that is just my bag. I know it's not everybody's bag, um, but I'm a sucker for just watching something weird from 50 years ago. That's just me. Now, I do want to mention probably in episodes to come, because I've discovered all these little kind of streaming services that are all ad-based. You can upgrade if you want, or some of them are you kind of have to upgrade, but they're these kind of small niche streaming platforms. Uh, when I found Kino Cult, it was kind of in the middle of all that. There's other, you know, smaller streaming platforms that aren't your Netflix, Hulu's, Amazon Prime's, uh, Shutter, even uh, Tubi, all those other, everything you got on your Roku and Amazon Fire Stick, or I don't know what the hell everybody has. Um, there's all these other cool little streaming platforms that pop up that I'll save for a later, uh, a later podcast episode. Just to throw a few out there, I hope everybody's heard of like something called Midnight Pulp. It's a little bit like Kino Cult. It's got a lot of kind of obscure exploitation, underground films. Um, I think there's another one called Retro Crush that is all like 70s, 80s, 90s anime. Um, and anybody who knows me knows that's kind of how I like my anime from that era. And, you know, other cool things like um, Canopy is a streaming service that is based off of, I think if you just plug in your library card, me and Jason Coombs, uh, who was on the show a couple weeks ago, we're talking about it. And I don't, I don't know if that still is like a thing. I know for a while they had like all of A24's catalog for free and it's for free as long as you have a library uh, card. But I think that depends on like where you are in the country and some of those flyover states might get kind of screwed but i don't know i guess it's just how things are but yeah i just started discovering all these little streaming platforms and trying to find these movies and tv shows that you know aren't really out there to hunt that are hard to hunt down and when i heard about kino cult i was i want to join the kino cult that's what i that's what I said to myself. I couldn't wait for it to launch. And it was like, I actually heard about it a couple of days before it launched. Again, I think it was first week of October. And once it was up and running, I downloaded the app to my phone. I put it on my Roku and, and just like popped on a few cool things. And it, it, the, the, the platform obviously at the time started out kind of small. There was maybe, you know, in every section only about 10 or 12, movies but i've noticed over the last few months they are starting to expand so i wanted to do an episode where i put this streaming platform on people's radar because i know i have a lot of people that listen that still collect blu-rays still collect dvds still like to find kind of underground cinema of sorts or just something that pushes some boundaries or some buttons nothing to nothing with bad taste i mean some of these movies are kind of i don't know what i don't know what you say but nothing out of like you know you know what i mean like you know you see films from 30 40 years ago and you go well that wouldn't fly today and i think some of these movies yeah probably might not fly today but i don't think they're within bad taste or any sort of I don't know. Some of them are just kind of cool art house things. And I don't talk a lot about art house stuff. And some of them are cool, like straight up exploitation horror films. Some of them are films from famous filmmakers that have now made it big or ended up becoming iconic names in the industry. But this was like their first big thing. And I'll, I'll get more on that in a minute. Cause one of the films I picked for this episode to kind of just talk about with you is that, uh, so, you know, with that being said, you know, just to kind of tell you what you're going for, Kino Cult is ad-based. I believe you can upgrade. 
I'm not going to lie. I have not upgraded. So if anybody from Kino Lorber or Kino Cole is listening, um, sorry. <laughs> but so uh, before I kind of get going with um, just a few films I wanted to spotlight on that are streaming now on that service, I'm just going to kind of tell you what you're getting into when you just create a login and go for it. I mean, right now on the homepage, and one actually one cool thing they do is um they have uh <laughs> they have like a live stream going on like you can hop on and it's almost like you know basic cable basically you just turn it on and something's playing and um rather than just picking something you can just kind of jump in and watch something that's already streaming either from midway to the end or catch something in the beginning and there's usually like a a schedule of sorts um you know going on with, you know, what's playing next and stuff. And like right now I'm looking at it and uh, <laughs> in a few minutes, uh, a movie Devil Bat, which I believe has, um, is that, I think it might have Bela Lugosi who played Dracula, the original 1930s Dracula. I think he's, uh, <laughs> I think he's in that. I could be wrong. I, maybe I'll cut that part out. But um, just all the sections they have, they have recently added films. Uh, one of those recently added films is called The Miami Connection, which is like one of those, awesome midnight movies if you haven't seen miami connection you need to go check it out it oozes 1980s in a nutshell in a low budget like action kung fu gangster movie that takes place in miami um it i've i've rewatched this thing like three or four times i'm not even sure i still know what the fuck it's about but it, it's just such a fun movie to like have a beer and laugh at uh another cool thing that was just added was a movie called raiders which I caught about five, six years ago, I want to say, on Netflix. And it's the, the poster might trick you. It looks like one of the Indiana Jones movie posters, but it's just called Raiders. And it's the story about a group of filmmakers who made like a shot-for-shot -shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And um, it's just such a cool documentary that's just like a testament to indie, independent filmmaking and um you know you just see what the the filmmaker goes through with taking time off from work and getting like an extra i remember there's a scene where he's just like pleading with an investor to get like an extra five grand to finish this thing and like him and the people behind it have just been at making this thing for years it's a real cool it's a real cool doc i highly recommend it uh, you also got kind of your exploitation um, you know, Europe, European horror classics uh, that just kind of have very obscure um, names. You know, films from like all over Europe, uh, Black Magic Rites, uh, Two Orphan Vampires. Some of these, you know, I would not want to watch with a kid in the room, but, you know, whatever, do what you got to do. Uh, a lot of like, you know, Mario Bava films. I think Mario Bava has a collection on here. Uh, great Italian uh horror filmmaker he's got his film like evil eye is on here black sunday um uh, kill baby kill is on here uh, i want to say I, I mentioned the mario bava collection when i first mentioned kino cult back in october yeah i remember i remember cutting an episode during halloween season where i wanted to put this on people's radar and i think that was the beginning of me maybe wanting to devote an episode you know to this streaming service uh, you got a lot of art house movies as well. Uh, if you really want something pretty wild, I highly recommend you check out something called Dogtooth. I'm not going to say anymore. Um, genre, film fans, and you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Dogtooth is a lot of fun. Uh, one of the big independent foreign films the last 10 years, um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, a vampire film that I believe takes place in Iran. Uh, I just love seeing kind of those genre tropes vampire films but like done by you know filmmakers that aren't american it's always a cool take to see that kind of story but in a different world you got like uh your 70s and 1980s films um they got like a whole section for that there's a great movie on here that i'm going to talk about in just a minute because uh, I, I, I just I fucking love the monster in this movie so much. You have a Joan Collins double feature on here, one from 1978 called The Stud, and the other one called The Bitch. <laughs> and um, they're they're pretty much in the same universe, I believe. 
um, those two movies I've actually been meaning to just kind of sit back and do a double feature about. I'm I'm a sucker for a good Joan Collins <laughs> story. Um, yeah, and you got like uh, there's a Jess Franco collection. Uh, Jess Franco, you know, makes these just very strange, obscure movies from the I think it's like 1960s into the 1970s. Um, you got like classic films here. Devil Bat, okay, it did have Bela Lugosi in it. Things like Black Sabbath, which again is a Mario Bava film. White Zombie, also with Bela Lugosi. Uh, Phantom of the Opera on here. Just like a lot of your, a lot of kind of cool films from the 1930s and 40s, which I have one on my list right now, which I will get into in a minute. And then there's these, there's this section here called The Golden Age of Exploitation. And they have these movies um, that are, some are just like 10, 15 minutes long, and they're almost just done like PSAs. And like, the, there's 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 an eight-minute film called How to Undress. And it's a movie about, you know, how a woman should properly undress in front of her husband to, you know, turn him on and stuff and whatnot, or how to be a lady. And... It's just hey, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into it, but there's just so many like generational gaps in this movie as I watch this in 2022, and I think it came out in like 1933 or something. Um, so yeah, it's got again, like I said, these very for anybody who's unfamiliar with you know these kind of movies, kind of has these very uh, out there films. Um, but I kind of like out there stuff. It's entertaining. It's nice to watch after the kids go to sleep. <laughs> I have no shame in that. Anyway, I picked a few off of Kino Colt. Uh, some to kind of aren't, they don't go too far deep because I know some of my audience doesn't necessarily go for this kind of stuff, but I think I'd also have audience members that listen that if I'll go watch something, they'll check it out too. So... I played it a little safe, though, with um, <laughs> with this kind of... Uh, I played it kind of safe with some of these titles, but they're still entertaining and worth a shot. So I picked, I picked five titles here to just kind of run through and kind of break down for you and hopefully maybe want you to pack a bong or drink a beer and <laughs> tune in on Kino Colt. And away we go. First things first, I want to talk about Fear and Desire, which was released in 1953. It's an, it's an anti-war film that was directed by someone who is a god amongst filmmakers. Uh, directed, produced, and edited by Stanley Kubrick. And it was written by Howard Sackler. This movie, um, I, I feel like I remember seeing this in film school. We were forced to watch it as, I think it was like, I think it was like in a class where we were watching, you know, big time filmmakers, like early work. And we watched this and this movie's like about 65 minutes in length. So it's a quick watch. A lot of the, a lot of the movies from like the old 1930s, 40s, 50s, I think up until the 1960s on this streaming platform, a lot of them are quick watches. So you can bang a lot of these out in like three, four hours. You can have make an afternoon out of it. Fear and Desire is Stanley Kubrick's first feature length film, I believe. Uh, the film is not specifically about any war per se, though. Like, it's never mentioned if it's, you know, who the enemy really is and whatnot. But, however, the film was produced uh, during the height of the Korean War. Um, to to kind of just give you the basic plot here, though, of Fear and Desire. It's about, a, uh, it's about an airplane that's carrying, I think it's like four or five soldiers... Um, and it crashes behind enemy lines and you know the soldiers are out in the on the woods or the jungle it looks like this was filmed in california somewhere on the hills even though it's not specified what country that this takes place but um they're, they're basically up on a river and they're thinking they can build a raft to try to reach their battalion and but then they get approached by like a, a a woman who's native to the the country and they they think she's going to be a threat to them of some sort, so they end up tying her up to a tree, and they leave one of their guys with her, and he, I don't know, he thinks like, you know, um, he thinks maybe, you know, if he lets her go, she might, let's just say, make love to him or something, do some sort of, you know, romantic embrace or, you know, fulfill his 
desires of some sorts. And she actually like, you know, runs off and uh, she ends up getting shot dead by the soldier. And then it turns into a bit of a predicament from there. I won't go further than that. Um, you know, to, to be honest, I, I love Stanley Kubrick's films. His films are worth studying for a lifetime. But um, this was definitely, you know, maybe not really my bag. I, I don't know, like, you know, for 65 minutes. Um, it kind of dragged a little bit, but Kubrick's films kind of do take their time. He, he doesn't really hurry up to get to where he's going. So even though, like, you know, I think it's worth a watch to kind of see the early workings of a filmmaking genius. But I just remember, I don't know, not really caring for it once it was over, but there's little moments in the, that film where I can't help but go, okay, I want to see this guy's next movie. And, like, you know, if I'm seeing this in the 1950s, you know, okay, you know, there's definitely talent there. There's definitely something to be said about the guy working the mechanics behind the camera. But, um, you know, I don't know. I feel like, you know, I don't think, like, the plot gets to where it does. But then again, every time I've revisited one of his movies that maybe I just kind of didn't flock towards. I like it more and more. So maybe I'll go listen to, maybe I'll go watch Fear and Desire one more time and see if I get anything more out of it. Um, Because it also kind of dives down into the realm of, I feel like, you know, these soldiers become very paranoid and uh, things just kind of start to happen. But I, I don't think, you know, Kubrick had the money and whatnot to really stretch this thing out to two and a half hours where we can really sense the maddening of what's going on with these characters and how, you know, maybe crazy that they're starting to get and how untrustworthy they are of each other. Um, I don't know. I think the movie, I think the movie was only made for like $30,000 of some sorts. And supposedly I heard Kubrick isn't really that fond of it or wasn't that fond of it. He never really... I mean, you know, he went on to obviously do bigger and better things, but, um, you know, he kind of just walked away from it and said, okay, on to the next one. But actually in the film, uh, one of the cast members who plays uh, Private Sidney, who's the one who kind of initiates, who starts to go crazy when um, the woman flees him. Private Sidney is played by Paul Mazursky, who is, who's been nominated for five Academy Awards uh, three times for best original screenplay and once for best adapted screenplay, and uh, also he was nominated once for best picture for Unmarried Woman in 1978. And this guy's—he's uh, a film director and screenwriter. You know, just to name some of his films: uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice in 1969, Bloom and Love, uh, Harry and Tonto, Moscow on the Hudson. That's a favorite of mine. Uh, 19. 1984 and um of course down and out in beverly hills in 1986 that is a another fun film so he plays a character in this movie which i thought was kind of cool i didn't know that when i was watching it i, I think i was just I read up on the film afterwards now despite me kind of saying you know eh, i guess maybe it's good for 1953 but wasn't really good for me even though i appreciate watching stanley kubrick's early work before he got to be stanley kubrick uh, there was some pretty good uh, critical response to the film, but not a lot of people ended up really getting to see it at the time. I mean, there there was not a box office success by any means. Uh, Stanley Kubrick ended up having to go take kind of director for higher jobs, working on you know small things with very little funds. And but you know, like I said, he ended up becoming what he became. And you know, this film kind of. Uh, had a renaissance in the 1990s where it started showing up at film festivals again. Uh, Tellerud Film Festival had a retrospective screening in 1993. 94, the Film Forum, a nonprofit art and revival theater in lower Manhattan, was showing it a lot. And however, the film's copyright lapsed, and I believe it became public domain, allowing it to be shown without fear of legal actions. And I think. Kubrick actually tried to thwart that plan of it going into public domain. Uh, he, he just pretty much tried to tell people, like, eh, don't go see this. It's, a, it's an amateur film. I think the quote is, it's a bumbling amateur film exercise. And I think, you know, a lot of people would argue maybe that was his way of, you know, he couldn't make money off this thing anymore. So he was trying to, you know, get people away from being able to see it. I, I don't I don't really know. I don't have an opinion on that. But, um, 
yeah, it's so anyway, fear and desire is a, you know, is does have his amateur moments. But I think again, you see the early workings of a genius in there. So you can check it out on Kino Colt right now. And on to my next pick that I watched recently off the platform, a film from 1940 called The Ape, starring Boris Karloff. If you know who that is, uh, great. If you don't, well, I will specify not to be a snob or anything, but Boris Karloff, of course, iconically played uh, Frankenstein's monster in Frankenstein. Every time you pretty much see some kid dressed as what they will probably say Frankenstein on Halloween, he's actually dressed up as Frankenstein's monster, who's played by Boris Karloff. Anyway, we've come full circle now of me being a snob. Moving on. The Ape is released in 1940. It is a feels like a very low, but I don't I don't really know like a lot of the historical context of the film. It there were a lot of movies out at this time that were kind of I feel capitalizing on the Universal Monster movies of 10 years earlier. And oddly enough, you know, Boris Karloff was in on that as well as Frankenstein's monster. Again, come full, we've come full circle. <laughs> um, sorry. Anyway, um, but yeah, you know, I think they were just by this time a lot of, they were throwing stuff at a wall with movie monster films and seeing what sticks. A lot of independent, you know, studios were trying to make something to get some cash maybe. I don't know, but so the... This film called The Ape, which, um, you know, I guess you could say maybe they're also trying to tie in some sort of King Kong vibe to it, even though the ape in it is not giant. But one thing, a vibe I just got, and again, I don't I don't know if this is fact or not, but like I'm just looking at the time this came out and I'm thinking about like, you know, polio at the time of the 1940s and 1950s. And... Um, you know, polio vaccines and whatnot. And I, uh, I don't know. I just remember that thought just went through my head because of the plot of this movie, which to, to give you the, of course, the, 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 what's going on in this movie, uh, Boris, Boris Karloff plays, uh, Dr. Bernard Adrian, who is researching a way to help a wheelchair bound patient. Her name's Francis. Um, he's helping her learn how to use her legs again. And for some reason, polio went through my mind because I remember hearing the stories of if you got polio, like your body just shut down, you couldn't walk. Um, I could be wrong about that. I do not want to. Sp- <laughs> I do not want to spill the false news, fake news. Um, the only way we, he can achieve this is by he, he has to go out and get spinal fluid from a human. Uh, but when an ape escapes from the a nearby circus, uh, Boris Karloff's character tracks down the ape and kills it. And he uses the spinal fluid on Francis and boom, it starts to work, but he needs more. So he ends up using an ape body suit. No, he he uses the ape's body as a suit. Sorry, I think that's how it goes. And he runs around killing the townspeople in a crazed attempt to complete his plan. And I guess it's weird because, you know, Boris Karloff plays Frankenstein's monster about eight years earlier. And, you know, that's a very mad scientist kind of film. And here he is in this movie playing a mad scientist um, who I think is just trying to play God of some sorts. Um, It's a cool movie. I'd hate to use the term uh, it is of its time uh, because I think that's used in a different way today, obviously, when something's you know, offensive to, you know, a demographic of people or, you know, a a culture or an ethnicity. It's not that by any chance. I'm not trying to go that route. But um, I feel like there's a lot of movies that came out like this, like I was saying, post-Universal Monsters. I mean, Universal Monsters are still in the zeitgeist. Sequels are being made to Frankensteins and Draculas. But, um, you know, guys like Boris Karloff needed to do other things. And I just, you know, there's not a lot you can do research-wise on this film. It's just kind of one of those movies from the era that are these, uh, you know, I don't know if you'd label it a monster movie or just a mad scientist movie, but um, a lot of these things were out there. And um, I, But what research I did do was uh, the director of the film, his name's William Nye, uh, or Nye, Nye or Nye. <laughs> It's, yeah, William Nye. That's 
that's kind of how it's spelled out for me as I'm looking it up. Uh, he was a frequent collaborator with Boris Karloff, working working on um, the Mr. Wong franchises. I don't know if you'd even call it a franchise, but there's Mr. Wong Detective, uh, the mystery of Mr. Wong, Mr. Wong in Chinatown. Uh, also collaborated with Karloff on things like The Fatal Hour and uh, Doom to Die. These, you know, it seems like they're like noir films. I've seen The Fatal Hour, have not seen Doom to Die. These are those films from that era you could probably if you want to watch some classics or you know maybe maybe not classics but just like from that era you could probably find these things on youtube um but that's the ape uh it's kind of a little out there it's about 60 again it's like 66 67 minutes in length you could watch it back to back with fear and desire not that that double feature really adds up at all but um yeah it's out there i mean it's nice to see someone like boris karloff in other roles outside of frankenstein's monster um you know he he's actually in a lot of great things he he played a lot of characters outside of that character in such awesome ways he was also in a film that i just watched recently that's streaming over on shutter called the black cat where he kind of goes toe-to-toe with bella lugosi which is kind of cool it's these two titans of the universal monsters universe kind of going squaring off in a very tense um yeah thriller from the 1930s gets really fucking dark for that era uh yeah and of course as everybody knows um and if you don't know uh boris karloff is the voice of or the narration in how the grinch stole christmas movie the old one from the 1930 from the 1960s i believe 1960s or 1970s um yeah so i don't know that's just another cool little black and white uh mad scientist movie from that era i checked out that's streaming over on kino cult and next up i got a few more for you and this one was a second watch for me on kino cult uh first one i popped up on shutter about six months ago i don't know if it's still on there and uh, i know kino lorber did a cool blu-ray for it um I think the trailer for this shutter used for the trailer on their streaming service. Uh, the, the trailer that was used on the Kino Lorber disc for like bonus features. Um, this movie is called raw head Rex. Uh, this film is a lot of fun creature feature, satanic monster running amok in a, I believe it's uh, an Irish town. And, um, you know, the, it, the general plot is a, U.S. historian takes his wife and um, his son to this town, and he's doing research on this uh, deity or this this you know just this pagan creature that has been running amok on the countryside, and it the, it's believed to be <laughs> I don't know if they necessarily call this creature Rawhead Rex, but um, that's what the title of the movie is, so I guess you can call it Rawhead Rex. Um, funny story behind this is um it is uh this is based off of a i believe short story or i don't know if it's short story or novel by clive barker who you know famously went on to do hellraiser and you know a ton of other things but you know iconically known for the hellraiser franchise or at least you know the first couple ones but um he wrote the screenplay for this so this was a few years before hellraiser kind of hit the scene um so this was like kind of maybe one of his i don't know if it's one of his first but um this project probably led to a few things um the overall kind of storyline and script and i think the message that's coming through on the pages if you could ever get your hands on this screenplay or the short story is very clive barker there's just something about it that's just very it's it's just it's dark it feels very dark um but unfortunately i don't know what kind of budget they got behind this thing um at times it is a little campy uh, the, the creature alone, Rawhead Rex or Rex or whatever we're calling him is, uh, very grisly and, uh, his kills are very gory. And sometimes they cut to a lot of shots of him that are, you know, bonkers and batshit crazy and hit. And like, there's some shots of, um, the main character, the, the historian that's in the town that's kind of, you know, turns into like investigating that, you know, what the hell's going on. There's some shots where he sees the creature from afar and um, like they're, they're so well crafted and it looks so cool cinematography wise, makeup wise, 
just the images are very haunting. And I remember you see some of them in the trailer. I think that's what grabbed me into hitting play. And uh, But once you kind of get into the movie and a lot of the kill scenes, it's just a guy in a suit. <laughs> it looks like a big wrestler from the 80s. Uh, you know, running around grunting and whatnot, you know, and he's wearing a funky mask, but it's still kind of cool. Like I said, it has some camp value, but Clive Barker's involved with it, and I think his, and just how great of an artist he is, I think some of that is able to ooze through all that nonsense. So it's an enjoyable, fun monster movie. Um, it's, it has its scary moments, and but it's just fun. If, if you're into these kind of things, if you're into, you know, some sort of crazy demon running amok through some small town and, you know, you know, somebody trying to figure out what the fuck's going on and, you know, kids are in danger and whatnot. It's, it, it's, it's fun. It's a fun little horror movie. Uh, again, I, like I said, I, I watched it initially on Shudder a while back, but uh, it popped up on Kino Colt, gave it a watch again because it's, it's just so fun. Up next for another film you can check out on Kino Colt is uh, again something you can find probably on a few different streaming platforms and this is a this is exploitation kind of at its finest that I think is a film that it it does have a very tongue-in-cheek subject matter usually this subgenre is not my bag at all not I, I it takes a lot for me to want to watch something of this ilk um, but a lot of mainstream moviegoers I notice have caught on to it, especially a few years. A lot of people who I know who I didn't think their, you know, cinema knowledge went this far um, have surprised me with name dropping uh, this film. And it is a movie from, I believe, uh, 1981 is the release date. 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm talking about Abel Ferrara's rape revenge uh, film called Miss 45. And I didn't know this until after I watched it again recently. This was a... I'd seen this movie a few times. But um, there was actually another title for it called uh, Angel of Vengeance. Um, But it's another title it's known for. But I believe they've just decided to make it Miss 45. This is an exploitation thriller that is kind of... It's definitely the first 20 minutes or so are just... If this is not your bag... Um, yeah, it's, you're not really going to like it because it is a, uh, woman who is brutally sexually assaulted, uh, twice in one day. And she is a, um, she works in like the fashion industry and I believe she's, uh, she's mute. I think she doesn't speak at all. She, it, she doesn't have a line in the movie and, um, yeah, I think she's, I think she's mute. I don't know if that's the exact terminology, but she goes home one day. Someone uh, breaks into her house, I believe, and she is she's sexually assaulted. She's raped, and um, from there, I think she, I think it happens again later on in the day, out in the alleyway. Uh, I'm not gonna go dive into that. If you, this already sounds like it's not your bag, it's not your bag, and trust me, um, these kind of things aren't really my bag. But I think just where it goes from there and the revenge path she goes on does have a little bit of a really good substance to it. You know, Abel Ferrara is a director that pushes some buttons, pushes some boundaries. Um, he, When I think of 1970s, 1980s cinema of New York City and kind of that sleazy world, I think of him. I don't think of him as like trying to get his rocks off with making these kind of films, though. And so I think that's why the film resonates with me is sometimes you see these movies and they just, uh, this kind of subject matter, it just feels like there's somebody behind the scenes getting their rocks off. And, you know, if you ever listen to Abel Ferreira talk, he's he's a very interesting character. He's very uh, eccentric. But um, I don't know. There's just something about when this character goes on her path of vengeance and pretty much just goes out into the streets and starts killing off guys who try to have her cornered and hurt her, uh, potentially sexually assault her again, and she just goes on this... Uh, it, it gets violent, <laughs> like rightfully so. It gets pretty violent. And it, this movie does feel like a bit of a response to um, Death Wish from a few years earlier with Charles Bronson. Maybe not a response, I should say, but it does feel like it's kind of 
all right, this, I guess, is going to be the female version of the movie of a woman taking charge after something horrible happening to her. There's a lot of scenes that I remember where she just goes to a Halloween party dressed as a nun and ends up, you know, pretty much shooting up the place. Uh, and it's kind of funny. More recently, I was watching Euphoria uh, on HBO Max, and my wife's catching up. She's watching season one. I finished season two, but I've just been kind of sitting with her because I like the show. And one of the characters is at a Halloween party dressed as a nun, and um, someone asks her, like, oh, you, you just went as a nun? She goes, like, no, I miss 45. Have you ever seen that movie? And I was like, oh, my God. That is, like, living proof of the, the creators of this show and their their knowledge of, of cinema. So, look, um, you know, this movie does have some tongue-in-cheek subject matter. There are a few things early on that are uncomfortable to watch. I don't recommend this for everyone. Um, I stay away from this subject matter, like I've said, but I knew this was a um, a landmark movie in that era of, you know, New York cinema of the 70s and 80s, so I do kind of go back and give it a watch and study it because I think Abel Ferrara is does have genius tendencies. I think he's, I think he's definitely a, a director that everybody knows for a reason. Uh, so that is miss 45 streaming on Kino Colt. Uh, I'm not going to tell you where it's streaming a few other places, but this shows for Kino Colt. I'm not going to say anything else about where you can find it. Just get, just get the streaming service and check it out. Okay. I saved the best for last here on this episode. Uh, so, so I've dropped a bunch of, uh, names of movies some directors some 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 categories you can look up if you get kino colt uh what i do need you to fucking check out <laughs> like they have um like i said they have a section of like the the early days of exploitation films and whatnot and one movie they have in there that is like a lot of people know about in the like underground cinema world and if you don't know about it, I'm going to bring it to your knowledge right now. Have you guys ever seen the movie Reefer Madness? Well, if you haven't, then uh, follow along here. <laughs> uh, Reefer Madness is from 1936, I believe. Uh, it got two different releases. Uh, it says produced it by in. It says produced in 1936, and then got a, another release 1938 and 1939. This movie had a budget of $100,000, and so for the 1930s, I don't know, I think that's a lot of money for the 1930s, but Reefer Madness uh, is, <laughs> oh my god, so I, I want you to now think of like old school public service announcement videos of, you know, telling you not to drink and drive, what you shouldn't, uh, telling you not to do this, telling you not to do that, all these things that are bad for you. Like I'm, tell, I'm, I'm saying go back 60, 70 years and actually go back even further than that with a release date like 1936 and just think of maybe the viewpoints of the world and drugs and alcohol. You know, this is after prohibition and whatnot and all these things that are bad for you. And here you have this movie that is an anti-marijuana film. Um, this is uh this film's an hour and eight minutes it's a it's labeled as a drama but also is now labeled as exploitation just because of maybe what you see in this movie um yeah reefer madness anyway so this is about a high school principal who um i guess begins to relate to an audience of parents that marijuana is having a devastating effect on teens in this school um and Basically, he learns of this um, place called the Reefer House that all the students are frequenting to, to, you know, smoke weed. And eventually these awful things happen to the students. And look, um, I'm going to be frank with you all on this show. I, I've mentioned it before. I've smoked marijuana plenty of times in my life. I don't really smoke marijuana as much as I used to, but... Uh, I have friends who I've smoked marijuana with. I have friends who still smoke marijuana frequently. Um, it's a fun little thing, okay? Like, it goes without saying. Everybody I know in these days is smoking a lot of weed or just smoking a little bit of weed because it makes you feel good. So in this movie, Reefer Madness, um, this is such, this is huge anti-marijuana that it's 
just funny. It, it's so funny that you, you'd think this movie was done as a joke, but you got to remember this is the 1930s. People's viewpoints are different uh, than they are now on a lot of certain things. It's just a testament to how people change, things can change, society always changes, uh, you know, just give something a hundred years, I guess. And, you know, that could be a good thing and that could be a dangerous thing also, I feel. Um, but they try to treat anti-marijuana in this movie like it's, you know, heroin or something, like it's really heavy drugs. Like, you know, th these kids are <laughs> these kids are jumping off buildings and stuff and all these awful things are happening to them. And watching it in today's eyes, it has got to be one of the funniest things ever. I'm sorry to say. It's hilarious. Because the reactions these people are having to marijuana is not what, not how anybody reacts to marijuana. I think the worst thing you can get from marijuana is a really bad cough. Um, you know, I remember the, the, the argument of marijuana is a gateway drug. Uh, that's up for debate. I always thought weed was a gateway drug to, I don't know, the refrigerator. But I'm not going to go on a, a tirade here about uh, what the side effects, what marijuana does to you. Um, but this is in a, a poor attempt at making an anti-drug message. And because it's just funny. these it, It's such a super funny delivery it, for anybody who's ever seen the room with Tommy Wiseau I, I know a lot of people know about the room um you know the, the disaster artist movie in that book and you know the room from 2003 I don't need to explain you guys should know that by now um oh hi Mark you know what I'm getting at here this movie's like watching the room but uh 70 years before the room came out uh oddly enough it's actually a well kind of produced film for its time black and white but um just the overall message you you just it feels like aliens made this movie people people not from earth people who don't get the human condition made this film uh, it's just so strange it's so funny it's it's the perfect movie to put on with friends at late at night when you guys have probably had a little bit too much to drink and you've probably been maybe i don't know smoking a little bit <laughs> smoking the devil's lettuce and just to sit there and laugh at it it's so goddamn funny i also had learned that this movie was uh it looks like it was funded by a church group uh, to tell morality tales i think the original title was called tell your children and it, it's they I, I don't have a name on the church group but they would make all these you know films uh, that are basically trying just doing stupid compelling ways to try to get people to not do these bad things and they would just come off absolutely uh, awful <laughs> so before i wrap on reefer madness uh, there's actually a cool thing from behind the scenes there's actually a cool thing that happened long after the fact like into the, I think the 1960s or 1970s or 80s even uh, that has to do with new line cinema actually so I'm sure a lot of you film buffs out there know of the production company, the Studio New Line Cinema. I, I believe they're, I believe they're bought by Warner Brothers by now. I don't, I don't know. I think they're kind of one and the same. But uh, New Line Cinema got its start as a production company or a distribution company or whatever. A studio got it, it got its start by pretty much distributing copies of Reefer Madness out on college campuses, and then they would just bank their money and then pretty much have some cash flow so they can go make their own things. And um, the company ended up hitting it really big when they created a lot of LGBTQ films. I guess they kind of got their start making cult cinema until they really hit it big in the 1980s with, um, I think it was Nightmare on Elm Street that really kicked off New Line Cinema in the 1980s. That was like their big hit that launched them into the stratosphere and kind of put them toe-to-toe -to -toe with the other studios so i thought that was kind of cool like this you know little movie studio that got to be huge got its start taking a public domain film which that's what uh reefer madness is at least at least to my knowledge reefer madness is a uh public domain movie it means you can just get a copy of it and show it off and whatnot and you won't get fined or anything or you won't have to pay some sort of fee uh yeah it's public domain and that's what they did. They just they 
went out and made money off this movie. I, I don't know who the rights ha- who has the rights to this film anymore. I don't know if it's New Line Cinema or not, but that was a cool little way. So independent filmmakers, there are many ways of financing your films. I don't know, maybe find some outlandish public domain movie and just start showing it to people. <laughs> Um, so that's kind of it for me with my list of, uh, films I, I've been checking out on Kino Cold. I'm going to continue to watch these obscure things. I'm actually going to maybe try and reach out to some people that have, if there are people still alive who worked on some of these films. I know I talked about a lot of old movies here today, but, um, I don't, I don't know, like maybe see if I can get some people in the cult cinema world on this show, hopefully in the near future, but like I said, Kino Colt's been growing. They launched back in October. And, you know, there's not like thousands upon thousands of, you know, movies there to stream. But, like, you know, there's a lot of cool little underground things you can check out if that's your bag. If not, then what the hell do you waste 50 minutes listening to me rant about? Um, anywho, check it out. Uh, I believe it's ad-based, but I believe you can upgrade. Um, don't hold me to that. But um, who knows what can happen with uh, monthly streaming fees kind of starting to go up and whatnot. Hopefully nothing goes up too big. But anyway, hope you guys are enjoying some movies you've been watching. Hope you guys have been enjoying anything else going on with your life. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. Take care.